everyone? I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. Now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. Those who think they know something, oh, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as, being, as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating an idol's temple, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning I've invited Rachel to come and uh, speak for us, to share the word with us. Uh, Rachel last preached uh, last September-ish, I think it was, when I was on leave, and uh, I thought she did an absolutely fantastic job. Rachel, if you don't know her, um, Rachel's been part of the Billabong longer than I have, but if you don't know her, uh, Rachel serves, uh, has served um, for a long time in our, with our students um, in youth ministry on Fridays, um, now in... Um, our teenage program, which isn't running today, so some of the teens are in here this morning, um, and Rachel, I believe, has a real gift in teaching and, and helping people understand the word, so um, thanks, Rachel, for agreeing to, to speak for us this morning. morning everyone. Uh, thanks Liam for reading the chapter for us. I'm just going to pray quickly before I get started. Dear Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the, the challenges um, within it and thank you so much that we get together together to uh, learn more about you, to understand more about what it means to live a gospel life, um, live a gospel-centered life and live for you, Lord. And I pray that um, your spirit will be with us um, and with me as I um, help us through this chapter. And yeah, I just pray that um, that what you have to say for us will, um, will come through and that we will be able to learn more about you um, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'll admit, when I'm reading the Bible for myself and I come across a heading, like the heading at the start of chapter 8, concerning food sacrificed to idols, my eyes will glaze over a little bit. I think, well, here's a chapter that has absolutely no relevance to me, so I might just skip over that. So if you've ever experienced that um, and think that maybe this talk about food sacrificed to idols is very much a first century Christian problem, I'm here to tell you that it's not like that today. 
everything Paul has to say on this topic is hugely important to the way we live as Christians in community today, as well as back then. And it's not because we routinely eat meat sacrificed to idols. No, it's actually a lesson in how our behaviour can affect those around us. So at the start of this chapter, Paul opens saying now about food sacrificed to idols. And he's kind of shifting our attention to the next thing that he has to talk about. Um, or in this case, the next question that the Corinthians have come up in, uh, come up with in their letter. So we've heard from Luke previously that 1 Corinthians is actually part of a correspondence that Paul's been having with the Corinthian church. So part of what he has to say is responses to stuff he's heard from word of mouth of people who've reported to him and also stuff that they've, uh, questions that they've asked in a letter to him. Um, so in this opening sentence, Paul actually quotes their letter and they say, we all possess knowledge. So earlier in 1 Corinthians, we've actually heard about the high place that knowledge and wisdom has in the Corinthian culture. And Paul's actually tried to dismantle this idea. Again, in chapter 8, he points to the problem of knowledge and actually compares it with love, saying that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And in this case, he's teaching about knowledge and wisdom to correct some specific behaviours going on in the Corinthian church. So what's this situation? In a couple of Luke's previous sermons, you might remember that the Corinthians have been coming to Paul with a variety of behaviours and saying, well, why can't we? In chapter 8, we've got another instance of that. So they say, we know things. We understand that idols are fake gods. They're not real. Uh, so therefore, eating meat that's been sacrificed to a fake god makes no difference. So why can't we eat whatever we like? Paul responds by saying that, yes, they do have a correct understanding about this situation. But how we act as Christians should not be about how much we know. Every one of our actions should be grounded in love. Love for God and love for other people. That's just a bit of an overview of what's going on, uh, but now I'm just going to unpack a bit more what the passage says. So in the opening verses of chapter 8, Paul compares knowledge and love. They're an unlikely pair of opposites. We know that the opposite of love would usually be hate, and the opposite of knowledge is ignorance. So why would Paul use these two as opposites? Well, I think it's to show how they affect the situation, and the effects can be seen not just in this situation, but in other situations within the church. The idea that knowledge puffs up shows this picture of a religious arrogance, an arrogance that serves no one in the church except for the ego of the one who possesses it. And then that's contrasted with love builds up, which is a truth we hear all throughout the Bible, that love for one another can build them up and ultimately build up the church. So in their actions... Puffing up the self versus putting the good of others before the self, they are in fact opposites. Paul then uses another comparison of the two in the next verses. Um, I've just used the NLT translation because I find it slightly less puzzling for verses 2 and 3. It says, anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much, but the person who loves God is the one whom God recognises. So the way that we conduct ourselves in Christian community matters to God. Even when we feel like we understand everything, the reality is we really don't know very much. So what do we do about that? We don't let knowledge create in us a superiority over other less knowledgeable Christians. 
that in itself is a very important lesson. And Paul shows us that the alternative, so instead of trying to be the smartest Christian out there, the best solution, the one that God desires of us, is to build up one another in love. We know that all throughout the Bible, God instructs us to put love first. And a memorable example of where love is contrasted with knowledge is in Matthew chapter 22. So in verses 34 to 40, it says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And do we see what's going on there? All the law, all the prophets hang on the commandments to love one another. All the knowledge you can have means nothing without love. So the stories in this chapter of the Sadducees and the Pharisees coming to Jesus and testing him, um, it's, it's clear from these that they're most concerned with being right and being knowledgeable. And Jesus' response shows us and them that being the smart one with the good questions is not what God desires of us. It's not what he cares about. But the most important thing is love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. In the next part of the passage, Paul takes this lesson about love and knowledge and lays out to the Corinthians what it has to do with food sacrifice to idols. Paul again quotes the Corinthians letter as they have said that they know that there is no God but one and that idols are nothing at all in this world. They've said this to Paul to justify members of the church eating food that has been sacrificed to idols, knowing there's no religious or sin problem there. But since the gods are not real, the food is just food and God couldn't care less. It's important to note that Paul does agree that there's not a problem here. There are no other gods, and so eating food that's supposedly sacrificed to these fake gods by the pagans, uh, so the non-Christians in the society, uh, is not actually an issue of sin. So the food's not a big deal. It's not a problem. Pagans making sacrifices to idols isn't the problem. So what is the problem? And Paul explains that in verse 7, uh, which I think is this one on the screen now. But not all possess this knowledge. Some people are still accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as being sacrificed to a god because their conscience, sorry, and because their conscience is weak, it is defiled. So the food that's not sinful and makes no difference to God becomes sinful and defiled because they don't possess the same knowledge. Paul says that these Christians are weak because they don't have the same understanding or clarity as the more knowledgeable Christians. Um, but you'll notice that Paul hasn't said knowledge is the problem here. The reality is, in any kind of vibrant living church, there will always be a vast range in knowledge and understanding. There will always be members of our church and of any church who haven't had as much opportunity for growth in their understanding as other Christians. Maybe they became a Christian yesterday, um, and understandably, they don't have much knowledge about the Bible yet. And this would have been even more evident in Paul's context. Uh, the gospel was relatively new, and there were a lot of uneducated people that never would have had a chance to read the scriptures for themselves, and even some that wouldn't have had 
very much religious teaching at all. So the solution is not to just tell them everything, tell them what's what until they have all the same knowledge as you. No, in this situation, and in a lot of situations within a church, situations of conflict within a church, love trumps all. Love is the solution. One of the important parts of Paul's explanation about the weak Christians he's referring to is that part of the reason they don't yet possess the knowledge that there is one God is that they're still so accustomed to idols, meaning the culture or normality that they've stepped out of when they became Christians was one where idol worship was really a big deal. And all of these various gods were, up until very recently, real parts of their lives. For them, eating eating that meat is a form of worship of another god, which therefore means blasphemy against the one true god. So for them, something that another Christian might consider trivial or even silly is actually sin. Verse 9 says, Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. The Corinthians know, as we do, that complete freedom is found in Christ. Freedom from sin, freedom from the law, and freedom to do whatever they want. Not exactly. We do have full freedom, but our behaviour still matters as Christians. Instead of asking, why can't we? We should be asking, how can we use this freedom to love God, to love our neighbours and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Gordon Fee puts it this way, personal behaviour is not dictated by knowledge, freedom or law, but by love for those within the community of faith. And in relation to the eating of idle meats, Paul says, if you behave exactly how you want in all your freedom, and when you encourage a brother or sister with a weak conscience to do the same, and they eat the meat, you're no longer just doing whatever you want. You're causing the destruction of their relationship with God. And you are sinning yourself. What was trivial becomes sin because someone was imitating you who did not have the same knowledge. This is actually a tricky situation, but Paul lays out quite a simple solution. He says, So, if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. He chooses not to eat the meat. It's as simple as that. Loving another brother or sister is more important than you exercising your freedom. As in verse 8, it says, Food does not bring us closer to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. If it's something that doesn't matter, why not just set aside your rights and give up that thing for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ? To put this a bit of a different way, because it can be a bit tricky with the idol and sin and not sin sort of stuff, um, just think about this analogy where there's a little child that comes over to your house. Um, So I have a niece who's two, and so if Alex comes over to my house um, and she sees a candle that we have on our table and she says, hot, don't touch. She's been taught this rule for her own safety. Um, And so she doesn't touch the candle because it's in her best interests to not touch it. But an adult in my house knows a bit more than her and knows an unlit candle is not hot and not dangerous but I would expect them to follow the rule of don't touch for the sake of Alex, the toddler, who doesn't possess the knowledge that a candle is only hot when it's lit. 
The point I'm making here is that we don't blame the child for not knowing whether the candle is hot or not, because it's not their fault they don't have that knowledge. The responsibility is with the adult to follow the arbitrary rule when the child is watching so that she doesn't harm herself by imitating the adults around her. It doesn't matter if the candle is unlit and therefore not harming the one who possesses the knowledge, the adult, but imitating touching the candle could be harmful to the child. So we keep the arbitrary rule for the sake of the child. I hope that makes a little sense. It's not a perfect metaphor, but it shows a bit of what the situation is with the sacrificial meat. It won't harm the adults to just touch the candle for the sake of the child, as it makes no difference when the more knowledgeable Christian doesn't eat the meat for the sake of the one who sees it as idol worship. So at this point, you might be sitting here thinking, okay, thanks, Rachel. Uh, when my friends who used to eat meat sacrificed to Greek gods come over, I won't eat meat in front of them. Perfect, got it. But I'm guessing that this specific situation won't come up for most of us. So I'm going to use the remaining time to outline what I think are four lessons we can take from this passage into our own context as 21st century Christians in Australia. So the first lesson is recognising the weaknesses of conscience in other Christians. I find a tricky thing about this passage is figuring out when we should apply what we've learned. And so I think the best way to figure that out is if we have real, deep, honest relationships with other Christians within our church family. When we can see firsthand where they are struggling and perhaps what sinful life they've turned from, then we can get to know what the weaknesses of conscience might be in our brothers and sisters. Being part of a church means being part of a community of Christians at varying stages of maturity and knowledge who have different backgrounds, different stories of what it means to have new life in Christ. This is an incredible strength of Jesus' church. In Ephesians, Paul says that we, the church, are a body, all different elements working together under Jesus who can help each other. As we relate to one another within this church and the wider church, we need those close relationships, discipling relationships. You should have someone discipling you and you should be discipling someone else. And maybe that's a challenge for you today, to search for and nurture deeper one-on-one -on -one relationships within the church so that you can practice love and deeply understand another brother or sister so that you can build them up instead of unintentionally causing them to stumble. Secondly, um, as we talked about earlier, choose love first. So we've already talked about how important and how biblical it is to be choosing love over everything else, including over knowledge and freedom. Personally, I actually find this lesson quite a challenge. Those who know me well know that I love knowledge. I always have. The motto at my high school was savoir c'est pouvoir. I can't speak French, so that's not very good, but it means knowledge is power. Um, and I don't know why it's in French. <laughs> so I come from a place with a high emphasis on knowledge, just like the Corinthians. And if I'm honest, with a certain degree of arrogance that comes with it. 
I did kind of take this attitude to heart in the years that followed school. Nothing bothers me quite like seeing someone on the internet speaking from complete ignorance. I really want to correct it, but it's not usually useful. Um, when I see or hear stuff that's ignorant, yeah, sorry, I said that. I immediately want to correct it. So those who've experienced that from me, um, which would be some of you in this church, I'm really sorry. <laughs> because when I do this, it's not from a position of love. Sometimes I need a reminder from my sister or my husband that even if I think I'm right, speaking from my knowledge pedestal lacks empathy and love. And it's usually better if I just don't say it. As it says in verses 2 to 3, anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognises. Over the years, I have learned from my mistakes, but I don't always get it right. So this passage for me is a timely and challenging reminder. Paul says we can't be proud about knowledge. He says we need to go further in love. Other people might be more ignorant than you, but ignorance is not a sin. Parading your knowledge and forgetting to love your brothers and sisters, that's a sin. In all our behaviour, we are to choose love first. Even if it's not satisfying, even if we're actually right, it's not about that. Our personal behaviour as Christians must be showing love first. The third lesson uh, is living an imitable life. Uh, so living a life as if you're going to be imitated. Um, so Luke actually brought this up chapter 4. Um, in chapter 4, Paul urges the Corinthians to imitate him. Uh, and he uses the analogy of being like a father to them. As in their culture, a child would learn from their father by staying by their side and imitating everything they did. In the church, we are all like children and fathers and mothers. Whether, whether you like it or not, someone will be seeing how you behave and they will copy it, just like a little child. I'm going to go back to using my adorable niece as an example since I don't have my own kids. Um, so when Alex was over at my house a week ago, uh, she thought it would be really funny to go and hide in my bed and when we're playing around in my bed. Um, and I have a Google device in my bedroom and when you speak to it and say, hey Google, turn off the lights, they'll turn off. Um, so after playing with Alex and turning the lights on and off, which she thought was pretty fun, um, she noticed what I was doing and starts saying, lights off. And it didn't quite work. Um, and so I did it for her again. I said, hey, Google, turn the lights off. And then the next time she said, hey, Google, lights off. And it worked. So it only took her three goes of watching me do it before she was able to imitate me and do exactly as I did and learn, you know, a very valuable life skill. <laughs> um, so it's so easy for kids to see our behaviours and copy them. It's how they learn. And even behaviours we didn't know we were demonstrating, that we don't really want them to imitate, can be copied. We're the same in our adult relationships, especially as we grow in Christian maturity and intentionally or unintentionally imitate our mentors in the faith. We might have a bit more discernment as adults, but there's still the danger that we will see behaviour and copy it without realising what effect it will have. So that's why this chapter does serve as a warning and why we need to be mindful of our behaviour as Christians. The last lesson is don't eat the meat. Just don't eat the meat. 
whatever situation you're in, especially if you're discipling another Christian who is weaker in some sense or more vulnerable than you, do what you can to stop them from stumbling. Weaker, oh, sorry. Don't eat the meat. Don't drink alcohol. Don't complain about your parents. Don't put work over church. Don't do the thing that they might see you doing and think it's okay to imitate you when for them it's going to hurt their relationship with God. Last year, uh, Liam and I went on a trip to Kalgoorlie to see some of my family uh, and we went to their church on the Sunday morning uh, and heard this fantastic sermon from an Aboriginal preacher. Um, one of the things that he, that he talked about that really struck me was that when he talked about having a new life in Christ and turning from his old sinful life, he put a really big emphasis on turning from a couple of certain behaviours. Uh, they were premarital sex, um, drinking and smoking. It was a really good message, but I actually found it a little strange how much of an emphasis uh, and how he was urging the congregation to completely give up on these three things. Obviously, I didn't find the premarital sex one that weird because the Bible is quite clear um, that sex outside of marriage is a sin. Um, but And alcohol, I was like, yeah, okay, I see that. Um, there's plenty of people in Christian community that find it a matter of conscience not to drink at all, uh, even though the Bible prohibits drunkenness, not drinking. But smoking, I found a little trickier. Don't get me wrong, I actually think smoking is gross and it's bad for you, but I don't see how you'd classify it as a sin. So I asked my cousin about it after the sermon and he said, oh yeah, that's bush gospel. I was like, what, what is that? I'd never heard the term before. Um, but he told me that in the context of rural communities in Australia, the behaviour that they feel they need to turn from to be a Christian are the problematic behaviours from their past life. And in their context, that encompass sex, alcohol and smoking. I found this kind of interesting because it's an example of where the culture before turning to Jesus comes into play. And because of the cultural context, staying away from alcohol and smoking is a matter of sin. Not every culture that we might come from before giving our life to Jesus will have the same emphasis on these behaviours. But I do believe that alcohol is about as close as we'll get to sacrificial meat. Because a problematic relationship with alcohol, whether it be getting drunk, binge drinking, addiction or underage drinking can affect whether or not alcohol is sinful in your own life. Just like how eating sacrificial meat can become idol worship. So that is one element of our behaviour I think we need to be careful with as Christians. Can your own behaviour when it comes to alcohol be a stumbling block to a Christian you're close to? And bear in mind here I'm not talking about causing offence um, if you have a Christian friend that is offended by you drinking alcohol, that's actually a little different. What we're talking about is, is there a chance that they would imitate you and that that imitation would hurt their relationship with God? So it's actually quite specific and it can be hard to see a specific situation like this where it could happen. But the point is, if you recognise a weakness in your brother, and, brother or sister, don't say it doesn't matter. Don't try to fix it with knowledge. Instead, do your best to show love. Don't be a stumbling block. Build them up. Don't eat the meat. 
So I think this passage is difficult in a few ways. And I think some of these lessons we can take from it can really challenge how we behave as Christians. Stuff in our lives that aren't necessarily sinful can become sinful when we approach our behavior as Christians without considering how we love one another. Once again, as we've seen through 1 Corinthians, the bar for Christian behavior is set very high. It might seem like this is unattainable or just too much to even try, but what we've been learning so far is that we are gospel people and we are to live gospel-shaped lives. And because of the grace poured out over us through Jesus, we have complete freedom and we can use that freedom to live a life that honors God. We should want to live up to Jesus' high standard. We should want to help all of our brothers and sisters in Christ and do everything that we can to love them and never be a stumbling block to their faith. It's not easy, uh, but the good news is we have Jesus as our example and as our redeemer. And we can turn to him in prayer when we're not sure how best to love our brothers and sisters and when we need help with our own weaknesses of conscience. I'm just going to pray close up. Dear Lord God, uh, thank you for this challenging word in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we pray that we might find ways uh, to relate it to our own lives. Whether it's thinking about our close relationships with other Christians or thinking about what behaviours from our past life um, can influence how we are as Christians today and whether or not things are sinful. And I pray that as we reflect on this, um, that you can help us, Lord. Help us to, to love one another, to build one another up in love, and to set aside knowledge and rights, and to instead think about how we can build up your church, Lord, and love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.